Good morning. We all drying off? Yeah. Yeah. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited that you are here with us um, as we kind of head into these last few weeks of a summer sermon series that we have been covering called Roots. It's all about exploring our Methodist heritage, our Methodist beliefs, how we got here. Because so often, and this was true of me, I said this last week, even if you were raised in this tradition, if someone asked you what it meant to be a Methodist, my guess is you come up with some answer that says, we're nice, we're in the middle, we kind of sing a lot. Those are the descriptors often that Methodists get. And so we wanted to take this summer to take the opportunity to kind of explore a little bit of that heritage and think about what makes Methodism and Methodist unique. So for the first couple of weeks, Stephen covered kind of the distinct beliefs. Like, what do we believe that's a little bit different? And you can go back and read and listen to those sermons to learn a little bit more. But then in the second half of the sermon series, we decided to kind of focus on the practices. What do we do as Methodists that are a little bit different than other churches? Last week, we talked about how we did communion different, what that meant to have an open table and what that means. This week, we're covering yet another practice. And I have to be honest, uh, this one is incredibly personal to me. And so this sermon is a little bit difficult to imagine myself preaching because it has to do with the fact that I am allowed to preach today. See, today we are going to talk about why United Methodists ordain women. And it's a funny topic to talk about because I think a lot of pastors have felt a call from a very long time, like from when they were younger. But if you had told me at 15 that I would be a pastor, and then secondly, how much time I would take on airplanes and at rehearsal dinners and over lunches explaining how I could be a pastor, I would not have believed you. Because I was raised in a generation of Mia Hamm and Condoleezza Rice and the Spice Girls, and I really thought that girls could do anything. I didn't really know that anyone thought differently until I got to seminary. But when I got to seminary and people started asking me what I did for a living, I started to get the questions, the same questions that I actually still get today. The top two questions I get when I tell people that I'm a pastor is one, oh, so your husband's in ministry too. I can't tell you the number of people that think Stephen and I are married. So, so many people. The assumption being that I couldn't be a pastor unless I was doing it with my husband. And then the second question is, oh, what kind of pastor? Assuming that I'm probably a children's pastor, maybe a women's pastor in some way. Sometimes you can be a care minister in that way too. They're assuming that I don't do the job of standing up on a stage and preaching the word of God. I could absolutely hold a grudge and be angry about those questions. But the reality is, I'm not. I'm not. I don't fault them because, funny enough, before seminary even started, before I started thinking about what it meant to be in ministry, I actually went to a church that I loved, and I loved these people so much, but they too did not believe that women could be pastors. And so I did a lot of work before seminary to make sure 
that I was right in hearing this call, to make sure that I was not going off the word of God. And so for a long time, I formed this case, this case about why I believed that women could be in all levels of leadership in the church. And today, I'm going to share that case with you. And it's not because I think you need convincing, because God knows if you're here listening to me, you're probably already halfway there. But I think we have to have a case because we cannot pretend that this is just the same as giving women the right to vote. Because the reality is majority of Christians, far majority of Christians, believe that women cannot and should not be pastors according to the Bible. If we want to say differently, we have to know why. And so being Wesleyan, the way that I'm going to present this case to you guys is through the lenses of scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Scripture is always our primary place that we go. And quite honestly, it's the place that most of the arguments are made on this particular issue. So today, we're going to start with scripture. Now, I'm going to give a warning, though. Because here's the thing about scripture and what we need to understand as Wesleyans. The scriptures were not really written to answer our particular questions about how to practice Christianity. Let me say that again. The scripture was not really written to answer our particular modern day questions about how to practice the faith. Scripture was written to tell us about God and to tell us about our relationship with God. And so whenever we go to scripture to try to think about these things, and we should, we have to do it with humility and the understanding that we're approaching a text with a very big question that it might have some ideas for, but we might not be able to see that lens quite, quite yet. The second thing that we have to be wary of when we're going to scripture with this question is, most, all, of, all of this text was written in a patriarchal world. There's no like ands, buts, ifs about it. It was. The systems that were in power during ancient days, no one will dispute this, were made so that men could be in power. There was just an understanding that that's how it worked. So when we look at scripture to answer this question about women being allowed to preach, we have to really think about what is so unique about how scripture is presenting it given its context? So we're gonna, the Old Testament has tons of examples. We're gonna skip through that because I really wanna focus on the New Testament. We're asking the New Testament the question, how does God view the roles of women in ministry in the New Testament? We'll start with Jesus. There are so many women in his ministry that are named and unnamed. It is an unusual statement that Jesus actually ministers to so many women. It's kind of odd. There seems to be a lot of people around him, both men and women. But perhaps the most telling thing is at the resurrection, right? At the resurrection, who does Jesus appoint to be the first person to tell the good news? Who is that? When he rises from the dead, who's the first person? Mary, right? A lot of people overlook that. 
But I think it's pretty dang important that the first person that he told to tell the good news that he was alive was a woman. In other words, he was, she was the first preacher of the good news. She ran and told people that Jesus was alive. Is that not what we do kind of every time we're, on, we're together on Sunday, some version of that? And so right from the bat, as soon as Jesus is resurrected, there seems to be something different about how women are being treated, something that we need to draw our attention to. And we kind of pay attention to that. Something seems different in the Gospels. There seems something that women are being treated differently than the status quo of patriarchy. And so we walk into it a little bit further, and then we get into Acts. And in Acts, at Pentecost, that's when things start to change. You remember in Pentecost is when we get the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? When the Holy Spirit comes down on humans and starts to empower their ministry, and that's where we get this quote from Joel. Joel is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. And it is quoted by Luke in Acts. And that scripture says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. The assumption is that those last days are occurring now with Pentecost. The spirit is coming forward and it's not just men, but it is also women who will prophesy. And that word prophesy means to speak the word of God. That they shall have the spirit too. And there's evidence that there are women praying and prophesying at Pentecost. If you go through Acts, you start to see folks like Philip's daughter start to preach as well. It is clear and is obvious that women were very involved in the ministry in the early church. So much so that they're named. Quite a few of them are named. And this is unusual in an ancient text. But we have Tabitha, who is named a disciple. Phoebe, who is named a deacon. We have Priscilla and Aquila, who are a married couple. See, that idea carries forward, right? Married couples minister together. There's another one. Junia and her husband are also named together. There's a couple women who in Paul's church are fighting. They're both leaders of the church, and Paul writes them to advise them to stop fighting so much. There's so many women who are obviously inviting people into their homes and preaching and leading these house churches in the early days. You might stop there when you start to see kind of this pattern of the early church, and you say, well, the answer seems obvious via Scripture. It doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with women being involved in ministry. Actually, it seems like the early church kind of relied on it. And that's true, actually. From what we can tell, a lot of the converts to early Christianity were women. And so it makes sense that they were leading some of these efforts of the wild, wild west that was early Christianity. But the thing is, I can't stop my case here because of two passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy that are often cited as the two passages that kind of definitively say that women can't preach. So this is my four case, and now I'm going to tell you why and how I look at those two passages differently. And let me tell you something. You will read these passages, and you will just want to throw them out. A lot of people do. They read them, and they think, well, I just don't believe in that part. 
I don't think that that is faithful. I think we need to engage in these scriptures in order to truly understand. So we're going to put our big girl and big boy pants on, and we're going to read some hard things. And I'm going to talk through how I see those differently based on some research that I did earlier when I was trying to discern my call. So the two passages are this. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Well, right? That's a hard one. That is a hard one. But here's how, here's how I think about this. Often this is taken, this is almost true of most proof texting in the Bible. It's taken out of context, and I hate to beat that drum again, but that is true. Because what we need to do when we're looking at passages like this is that we need to understand that in Paul's letters, we are eavesdropping in an ancient conversation about specific problems. The Corinthians wrote to Paul and said, this, 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 this is happening. Can you help us? And Paul wrote back, these, these, these are the solutions. Then we have to go with the one letter we have and try to put together what was wrong. That is hard work, trying to take a one-sided conversation from ancient Greece and trying to put it together. Yeah? or ancient Greco-Roman times, yeah? So when you look at Corinthians, you have to understand what the context of this was. Corinthians was a wealthy city. It had almost all Gentile converts. No one was Jewish. They were all converting to this new religion. As far as we can tell, this is why there was a lot of women, because there was a lot of wealthy women coming in. And what Paul does for majority of this letter is that he addresses problems in worship. It seems that the Corinthians were having some problems in their house churches, figuring out how to worship together. So he starts off in like chapter 11. He starts off talking about what worship is and how it should be this peaceful, unified, orderly thing. And it's like music. He paints this metaphor. And everyone has gifts, men and women included. He says that in chapter 11. Men and women included have gifts to participate in worship. But there are three groups that are disrupting worship. Those who speak in tongues, those who give prophetic words, and apparently a group of women who is asking a bunch of questions in the middle of worship. And you can tell that because the next part of this verse 35 says, if they have questions, go home and let them go home and ask. So we know that somehow these new believers, these new converts, We're talking in the middle of worship and disrupting them. And those three groups, all three, he tells to be silent. All three, he tells to be silent. And it's so interesting because for us, silence is like a really bad thing. Like we think it's this negative characteristic. But there is argument that that silence, both to the tongues and to the prophetic word, it's supposed to maintain some type of reverence in worship. And Judaism Still today, if you go to services, there is quite a bit of silence in their services. They call it a fence around Torah. It's a way to remain something holy. And Paul was concerned that that holiness, that reverence was gone. And so he told all three of those groups, be silent. Keep that reverence. If you have questions, go ask them at home. But keep this space holy. And then when it says, must be in submission, our eyes as modern readers often read that as be in submission to men. But there's no, there's no 
context that would make that true. Because as the law says, there's no Jewish law that says that women are to be in submission to men. And there's no Jewish law that says women should be silent in churches either. So we have to think about, well, what did he mean when he was saying it was in submission? What we understand is that he meant in submission to the order and peace of worship. His main goal in Corinthians is that this community has to remain intact and holy so that it can attract new believers. That is his goal. There's a verse in there right before it says, everything should build us up. Everything we do in worship has to be protected. So you guys need to act correctly in order for that to happen. So we look at Corinthians, we have to view it in this overarching view of what Paul was trying to do in that letter, which was to order worship that it might attract new believers. Okay, we good on that one? Ready for the next one? First Timothy. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. The next part of that says she will be quiet. Yikes. This one, this one is really difficult. Most people will tell you um, that this one is actually quite difficult to interpret just because of the way it's kind of situated in the letter. But we do know that it doesn't mean what it literally means for a few reasons. One is the whole letter, it's, it's set in Ephesus. Let me back up. It's set in Ephesus. He's writing to, again, a group of house churches that are having issues in Ephesus. Ephesus was an incredibly wealthy city. Apparently, because you can tell at the beginning of Timothy that um, Paul is talking about all these kind of adornments of women, like hair coverings, things like this, that there were a bunch of very rich women who were new converts to Christianity. And apparently they were causing some type of ruckus because he talks about false teachers. He's talking about these people who are coming into these house churches and preaching a false teaching. We don't know exactly what it was, but in some way it must have involved women because it affects the widows and whether they are going to marry or not. Apparently these teachings have kind of held on and are spreading like wildfire. And so Paul advises both the women and the men to not heed to these false teachers, that there is something not Christian about what they're saying. And you can imagine that this is pretty normal in early Christianity, right? There isn't like a book that tells Christians what they believe. And so they're very at risk for these folks who wander in to their house churches telling them, oh, no, 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 you're not supposed to marry. You're not supposed to do that. That's not what it's supposed to be. It appears that Paul is counteracting that argument here by talking again to this very specific group of women. Most scholars believe that these were kind of new converts. They didn't really know what they were saying. And so they were trying to take the authority upon themselves to teach. That word, assume, it actually is better translated as seize. Like they were taking or usurping authority from where it should have been. If you continue on in this letter, you can try and start to see and piece together where Paul was coming from. Basically, you had these groups of wealthy women who felt like they were eager beavers. Like they just wanted to go ahead and like teach. They wanted to teach this doctrine. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You are not ready. You need to learn first. And when it says, I do not, 
there is this implication that it is, I do not now permit. Like as in at this moment, I do not permit. The fact that this would mean that all women everywhere for all of time would not be allowed to teach was clearly not Paul's intention when writing this letter. He's trying to just figure out how to deal with these ladies in Ephesus. And to assume that that is the truth he was trying to communicate plagues us with a million problems that we really need to think about. Those are the two passages that are most brought up when talking about women and preaching. And sometimes, I know, it can feel a little bit like mental gymnastics with scripture. Like, are we sure, are we sure that that's what it means? I I mean, trust me, I do that myself, given that this is my profession. But the thing that I keep coming back to is what is the overarching intent, especially of Paul's letters? What was he trying to do? Paul was trying to build a movement that would attract more people. Therefore, it mattered greatly what those people did in their churches. So he wrote to them with what appears to us really strict instructions, but it was for a particular time and place as he built this movement up with the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at scripture as a whole, we see those types of gender roles start to get flipped. We see this opening, this invitation that cannot be ignored. Often, we talk about scripture as an arc pointing in a certain direction. And that arc, it appears with Jesus, starts with inviting more and more people into the circles. Gentiles first, right? But there is an assumption that that too meant that the roles in ministry would change. And so when we look at scripture, we have to look at the whole context of scripture. And we have to weigh that against tradition, experience, and reason. So let's take a moment quickly, and we're going to go through these last last three. Tradition is by far the easiest one to hang your hat on of why we don't ordain women. We never have. That's like the flat-out answer for most folks. And certainly this tradition apart in some other theological reasons are why Roman Catholics, for example, do not ordain women. But I, as I've been, I don't, I, y'all don't know this, but I'm TAing a few classes in history uh, this semester, and so I've been deep into church history land. And I gotta tell you, I'm starting to question the idea that our tradition has never recognized women in leadership. It's true. Formally, in this like little thing we call clergy, women have not been recognized until the last couple hundred years. But what has been true is that women have been doing ministry for a very long time. Starts with the early church with all those women that are named in the Bible. And then as the church starts to formalize, there is an option given for women who want to be in ministry. They go into convents which sounds crazy, but out of those convents come all of these women who are writing, who are making these really famous things that we still write, read today. St. Catherine of Hildegard, we have St. Teresa of Avila. We have all these people who are contributing to Christianity. 
And then over time, what happens in the Reformation is that priests are now allowed to marry. And once they're allowed to marry, well, things start to change. Suddenly those convents start to shut down as people convert away from Catholicism. And then once priests are allowed to marry, then a woman's place becomes more firmly in the home. Women's roles and ministries start to shift. And that's where we meet John Wesley. John was at this kind of crossroads of time, post-Reformation, we're in the middle of the Enlightenment. But he had an experience that I think defines why we ordain women, and that was his mother. His mother, Susanna, was a pastor's wife, and his father would travel often for different assignments. And so she was an incredibly pious woman, and Susanna would hold these Bible studies essentially in her kitchen. And she would hold them, and eventually they became bigger than the parish. There were more people coming to her Bible study than showed up to her husband's church on Sunday. And her husband got word of this and wrote back and said, like, uh, this is not okay. And she wrote back and said, you talk to God then. (laughs) And that was the model that John came from. And that story that maybe a person's relationship with God and communication with God, their call, they were not answerable to men. They were answerable to God. And that's why John Wesley, when women would do the same thing in his movement, they would kind of come up to them and like, they would say, hey, I mean, I could go individually pray with all of these 200 people at this meeting, or I could just stand up and talk. And John was like, oh, I guess, I guess you have an extraordinary call. And so he allowed women to preach. And sadly, after he died, that started to clamp down more. But all throughout the 1800s, there are stories of women being licensed to preach, of relying on their own journey and their own story and affirming that. United Methodists did not give women full clergy rights until 1956. But before that, there were tons of women who got licensed or in their local church, they were allowed to minister in a full capacity. I don't think tradition, the way we've been thinking about it, tells the full story. I think we have to look at kind of these informal roles as well. Women have always been called, just have men. And we need to pay attention to the stories that we are missing or forgetting or overlooking. And finally, I'll wrap up with this. And this is by far the easiest one to prove. And even opponents of women in ministry will say that experience and reason give a lot of ground for why we believe women can be ordained. Once, when I was leading a Good Friday service here, I had someone who was from an evangelical background come up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, that was beautiful, and it was good, but I'm not sure that it was true. And what she meant is, she experienced God through me speaking in the service, but she wasn't sure that it was scripturally okay. I think about that all the time because I think about the experiences we have with God and if it matters who the speaker is. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because that's a little crazy, but in your head, I want you to think about who you've experienced God through, who has preached the word of God to you. My guess is that it is a conglomerate of men and women. Our experience points to this. Fruit points to this. We can tell that something is working through women. And finally, for reason, 
this is kind of the thing that I come back to. It's a frame of looking at the Bible, but I think it's true. If we believe that salvation is for all, therefore we believe that baptism is for all, therefore we believe that discipleship is for all, it would not make sense to say that God just took off 50% of the population and didn't make ministry for all too. I gave you a lot of stuff, a lot of things to think about, a lot of reasons that I've encountered in my own personal life as I've tried to walk with this question. And I hope that's helpful. I hope it serves you, whether you come from a Catholic background and you're like, I just thought this was what all Protestants did, or whether you come from an evangelical background, you're like, I mean, she's a good speaker, so I just came and showed up and thought that was okay. Like, whatever your background is, I hope that this gave you some fodder to think about why we make the choices that we do, why I believe I'm up here and allowed to be up here. But ultimately, actually, when I was preparing this sermon, the thing that I kept coming back to was that what we're talking about specifically is a very small percentage of people who are called to full-time paid ministry. We are talking about ordained people, women being ordained. And I kept thinking, but the bulk of ministry is not these people who are ordained. If we relied on just ordained people, my Lord, where would the church be? No offense to us, but where would the church be? The problem with thinking about ordination and these narrow arguments is we're missing the point. That last slide said ministry is for all. And I believe that to my core, that if you are a believer, you are called to ministry. You are called to minister in your local church because for thousands of years, that is how men and women made the church. It was not from clergy. That didn't come until the first couple centuries. And even after that, the priests would just rotate and they wouldn't be in a church for a long time. Methodism was entirely formed by lay people. They would gather together with class meetings and it was average people who had full-time jobs on the side who would come along and lead a group every week for hours. That was their ministry. And if we focus on this small percentage of people like me and Stephen who feel called to this job full time, then we are missing the memo that we are all called to serve and to minister male and female, that we are called to serve in our local church because that is what makes churches run and that is what makes churches be the light in the world. My prayer for the Grove as we enter into the sixth year is that we may start to recognize that we are all ministers, that we have all been called, no matter how ill-equipped we feel, that God is moving in your life and bringing you here for a reason. I hope that you start to make space in your life to recognize what that call is and how you can serve, how you can be and preach and go and baptize, all those things that we talk about when we talk about making disciples that is in your hands, not mine. That is my prayer. 
is that we might start to be the people who actually believe that ministry is for all and not just male and female ordinance, but people like you who can step into the role that God gave you. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, you are what makes this work possible. You are what carries us. You are what gives us ownership of this call. Lord, help us feel led. Help us know that you're working in us. Help us live out our calls to ministry and feel confident in each step, knowing that it is not you. It is not us alone, that it is you working in us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.